think we all love to read in some ways because we feel we feel seen. Like for me, sometimes that was the first place that I would see myself and feel okay about myself was when you find that book. Yeah, that that loves you back. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of KIF, Keep It Fictional. I am your host, Fiona, and I am joined by Mark, Virginia, and Corrine. Today, we are celebrating Freedom to Read Week, which is happening February 19th to 25th, and is an annual event that encourages Canadians to think about the, and reaffirm their commitment to intellectual freedom, which is guaranteed to them under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I am feeling very passionate about this topic today because south of the border yesterday, Louisiana's Attorney General unveiled the Protecting Innocence Report in which many books were flagged to be considered inappropriate. And disproportionately, book banning definitely affects LGBTQ plus books, uh, as well as, you know, we've seen an upsurge lately in critical race theory being considered inappropriate for the innocents. Uh, so yeah, I'm feeling a little bit fiery about that today and very grateful for Freedom to Read Week. There is awesome literature on the Freedom to Read website. I could spend a whole afternoon just getting angry about all of the things that have been flagged and attempted to be banned or actually banned in Canada. To acknowledge that, we are going to be reading banned books today. So we're going to start off with Mark. Let's see what it is. Today, I'll be talking about More Happy Than Not by Adam Silvera. A little bit about the author. Adam Silvera was born and raised in the South Bronx in New York City. His mother was a social worker. And at a very young age, he started writing, particularly fan fiction. Silvera has also been very open about his own struggles with mental health, his coming out process, and some of the other biographical details of his life that are very relevant to this particular work. Even if the story is not, in fact, like a true story or even particularly based on his real life, just the fact that there's many similarities between his own past and the main character of this novel involving things like mental health, depression, suicide, and coming to terms to with his sexuality as a teenager. And related to this, there are some content warnings with the book that I would have to mention. There's a lot of themes and open discussion about suicide, self-harm, and homophobia in the book. And it does so in a very realistic and sensitive way. So it's not like sensationalized or done in like an uncaring way. But because of their centrality to the narrative, you'd want to consider this before reading. And there's also like a lot of use of language that, for example, there's a lot of homophobic language used throughout the book, but sort of not done to be like in a hateful way, but like a realistic kind of depiction of some of the issues that the protagonist Aaron finds himself in that many other LGBTQ teens face. And I think it's also important to mention this in relation to Freedom to Read Week, since the book hasn't not been banned because of hate speech or anything like that, but it's been banned because of its open discussion of sexuality, mental health, and trauma. And many people sort of point to it as being inappropriate for teenagers, inappropriate for younger readers, but really it's meant to show that these things exist, that they're not the only ones experiencing them. So it's very important in that regard as well. 
So I mentioned that the protagonist is Aaron. He's 17 years old, living in the South Bronx with his mother and brother in a Taiwan room apartment after his father's recent suicide. And his mother has to work all hours of the day in order to support Aaron and his brother, Eric. His brother, Eric, is also a fairly apathetic and kind of disconnected person. He spends his days working at a GameStop and then playing online shooter games with his friends all night long. So his family is very busy, often their own kind of things, whereas Aaron is on his own now for the most part in the book. Even though this single room apartment in the Bronx they live in provides basically no privacy or place for Aaron to be on his own or really call his own outside like a very small corner of the apartment where he keeps his stacks of comic books and things like that. And the apartment is situated in what is usually called the projects, quote unquote, in the South Bronx, the very lower class neighborhood because of the high density of public housing buildings. They're in various states of decay, very racialized neighborhood as well. Love black, brown and other racialized groups living in this neighborhood. So to sort of give you an idea of the kind of place that Aaron is living in, his family isn't exactly living in luxury or able to afford most of the things that might make a teenager or his family happy or comfortable with the place they are living in. Aaron also always been considered kind of like an oddball of his interest in comics, the arts, books, and is kind of an introspective and caring person. But Aaron's also been going through his own kinds of crisis and turmoil. He himself is in therapy for depression after an attempted suicide of his own and has a smiley face shaped scar on one of his wrists as a result of cutting it. He hasn't enjoyed his time in therapy and often remarks that his therapist only ever shares like obvious and predictable advice that isn't at all worth the money that his mother's working to pay for. He's also recently been trying to come to terms with his own sexuality as attraction to other men. And this has presented a number of additional challenges in his personal life. From the time he came out the previous year to his, with his father's negative and violent reaction to this, to having to find a way to tell his girlfriend and a group of friends and manage their different reactions to his coming out. There's also the fact that until very recently, he's been in a secret relationship with one of the boys from his school named Colin. Torn over thoughts of why he's not more interested in his girlfriend Genevieve, who he genuinely enjoys being with and cares for greatly, but can't find a way to carefully break up with her or move on to the next level of becoming more sexually active with her. But he has never been able to be with Genevieve or think of her in a more intimate way, the way he desires to be with Colin. Feelings of regret, wanting to go back to how they were in the past, how to find something to be happy about, and someone to be happy with without losing them, are all things that commonly consume Aaron's thoughts. It's very introspective and reflective, but it's also very much a kind of ruminating and kind of dwelling on issues and things that he could have done differently, things he'd wish it were different, which kind of spirals into these kind of negative and depressive thoughts of his own. And since the book is told entirely from Aaron's perspective, as he reflects on past events, while in the midst of these challenges and the confusion of his life, it can take some very sudden and abrupt changes in tone, jumping from the present to the past, from happy, positive memories to more, much more serious and negative things. This can be somewhat challenging at times from a narrative perspective, but it's understandable and somewhat fitting with the kind of mental state that Aaron is in and the kind of unsettled state he is in in his life currently. Aaron is further pushed to the brink after Colin breaks up with him after he accidentally impregnates his own girlfriend. He also began to develop feelings for one of his straight friends, Thomas, an accidental outing to his friends and their negative reactions to this news. He's not really able to partake in very much of the neighborhood activities. He used to very much enjoy laying off fireworks at night with his friends, having game nights and other kinds of things become virtually non-existent after 
these recent events of his outing and other things like that, which pushes him further downward into a negative spiral. Amidst all this, Aaron becomes interested in a new, almost science fictional company called the Lateo Institute. Lateo offers a service in erasing memories using state-of-the-art neural mapping and targeting areas that have the memories that relate to the person or event that is unwanted to be removed. Aaron even has a friend who moved away from the neighborhood and had the procedure done after the shooting death of his twin brother. The promises that Lateo and its consultants make of bringing happiness, calm, and normality to their clients, Aaron begins to see Lateo and its procedure as a way out of his negative thoughts, his negative memories, and his feelings towards other men so that he could become sort of quote-unquote like everyone else. Since if he could forget all about the things he feels and knows, couldn't he be happy just like everyone else? Couldn't he just go back to being with the people he used to know or move to a new neighborhood and start over again with all these negative traumas? And I almost found the way that the kinds of solutions that these kind of companies like Lateo offer in this story almost parallel some of the kinds of therapies in the past that promised to sort of quote-unquote like treat gay people to remove their feelings of being different, to make them just like everyone else. So in a way, I feel like Silvera's kind of present these science fictional almost situation as a way of critiquing some of the ways that people start sometimes talk about sexuality and mental health as being, having to be like everyone else, rather than trying to accept the way that they are as they are. And in this way, the book doesn't offer any clean or easy or idealized solutions to any of these questions about Aaron's identity and Aaron's struggles. Instead, it tries to tackle it in a clear and compassionate kind of way that you don't often see in a lot of media, especially for young adults. Definitely is trying to be very understanding and accepting in that way. So if you like your YA more realistic and intense, or want to read an engrossing introspective narrative, or enjoy the kind of occasional sci-fi twist, of this memory altering procedure that is presented as like a kind of solution, then you may also like More Happy Than Not by Adam Silvera. Thanks so much, Mark, uh, for that great pick. Okay, we are going to move on to Virginia now. If there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. This is a quote by Toni Morrison, who, by the way, also has lots of books being banned, The Blue Eye and Beloved in particular. Anyway, this is a quote that George M. Johnson has tattooed on their right arm. And it is also the reason why they decide to write this book, All Boys Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto. Growing up, Johnson knows that there are no one in books or on TV that are like them. And even as they try to navigate their own identities, there are no representations to help them understand who they are. Am I like this person or am I more like this person? They don't know because they have never seen themselves represented. So they wrote this book. They wrote this book for teens. So that if anyone out there is going through what Johnson went through, if they're in the middle of finding themselves, they have a book to point to. They have a roadmap. They can feel seen. They can help them come to terms with who they are and they can feel validated as a person. And Johnson mostly wants them to know that someone out there is fighting for them. In very clear and straightforward prose, Johnson describes their world growing up in New Jersey and 
he explores the intersectionality of their different identities and sort of slowly learning that you can't separate them. They're all part of you and you have to talk about them together. Johnson now identified as Black and queer. And they pointed out that's kind of like a double whammy because, first of all, you have to be in the white community where, of course, there's a mode that everybody is supposed to fit into. And then you have to stand back up in your own Black community and fighting those ideals of masculinity that Johnson knows they cannot live up to. Johnson remembers when they were six and they and their cousins were jumped one day when they were going back home from school and their teeth were bashed in because of that. And for years They refuse to smile. They refuse to smile. And how that incident, that's just one incident, has taken all the joy from him. That joy that he should have, that they deserve, have been denied to them. And they talk about many incidents like that. How trauma lingers. And as they said, there have been times when they brush the teeth too hard and then they get a taste of blood and was immediately taken back to that day. Not only did the incident left them kind of wondering, like, why? What, why did these boys do that? But also because they were constantly told, well, boys shouldn't cry. So they have never really dealt with that trauma. And it always comes back out. And unpacking these incidents and, and experience that they have and try to help us understand what it is like to be living as a person of color, talking about words that are being reclaimed, how harmful that could be when when someone not from the community uses it, or the idea of microaggression, impact versus intent, or Black History Month and how they remember when they were in kids. It's Black History Month feels like Christmas Eve because one day you're on Christmas Eve, you look at your Christmas tree and there's no presents. And then the next day you wake up all the presents under the tree. And for 28 days, it's like 28 days of Christmas as if somebody just cough up all the memorabilia. And of course, they're all like past, they're all history. And then after 21 days, everyone gets put away and you don't have to deal with them ever again. Talking about these experiences, again, help teenagers see themselves if that's what they are going through. Johnson also knows very early on that they like these so-called girl things. Growing up, they don't really have the words to describe themselves yet. They don't really know what it is that they are just yet, what fits them the best, because there's no models for them to look at. But they describe this journey of trying to work this out and how afraid they are to come out. And so they deny their true self. As they said, as much as I want to lead an openly gay life, I also didn't want to be a disappointment. Without a roadmap, without references, without information, teens who are trying to figure out who they are often end up in unsafe situations. One of the most painful and difficult chapters for Johnson to write is about a non-consensual sexual experience that they had with their cousin. And the chapter begins with this line, I contemplated whether I would write about you now that you are dead. They feel like even though they're telling the truth, they're being disrespectful. They worry about what their family and what their reactions would be like when they find out about the truth because they don't want to hurt them. And it's a decision that they only reach to write about after they talk to their family. And and it is so evident in the book, um, one of the things that Johnson, you can see almost is a love letter to, to their family because their family is so, so supportive and they are so fiercely protective of Johnson. And that's something that 
they know that they're very lucky to have. And despite how difficult this chapter is to write, they know how important it is for them to tell the story, not only because this is a very significant incident in their life, it really changes a lot of things in their life, but they also know that no one talks about sexual abuse. Nobody talk and teach about consent enough. And so victims, often they accept the abuse because they don't know otherwise. Nobody told you that it's not okay. For Johnson, when it happens, they remember being confused and they they know that deep down something is not quite right, but they don't know why and they don't have the words to describe why this is wrong. And so they want to make sure that this book can help teens and anybody out there who are wondering, who are questioning to know that this is not okay. And of course, because of that, this is one of the chapters that are often cited as why this book is pornography and that needs to be taken out of libraries. Another chapter that, again, one of the ones that often get read out in school board meetings or in library board meetings is when Johnson finally in their 20s, when they're finally ready to have a sexual relationship and they realize how much they have no idea what that's supposed to look like. And they realize how much the LGBTQ community has been denied a basic sex education, that the minimum education that you get from school is always about strict sex, as if like what they are experiencing don't matter, as if they're not valid, that there's only one type of sex. And so because of that, they didn't know what to expect. And sometimes teens end up getting into unsafe situation because of it. They talk about how people won't cringe at a straight sexual experience being explained, but they will cringe every single time during mind. And Johnson, as embarrassed as he is to admit now how much they didn't know what's going on during his first experiences, they also understand how important it is and they want to make sure that teens know that they need and they deserve this information as much as everyone else. And again, that's why Johnson writes this book. As Johnson said, anytime you write a book where you write about your truth, there are going to be people who want to silence that truth. All Boys, I'm Blued is banned according to Pan America by 29 school districts. It is the third most banned books on the American Library Association banned book list. It is challenged because it's supposed to be profane. It has sexually explicit. There is a lawsuit, a criminal case filed against the book itself in Florida for being pornography. There's a lawsuit against Johnson themselves. They think it's because they refuse to back down and they keep writing back. Um, and there are quotes from their books, like from the chapters that I referred to earlier about their sexual experiences that were used in like an ad by a parent who like read a passage from the book. And then they say, well, is that what you want your child to be able to get your hands on? Vote for this politician because he will never let that happen to you. So it's things like that that they are dealing with right now and how much the world as they said, does not want other teens to know that there are other teens that are different from them that exist, that lived alongside them. Anyone in a marginalized group needs a book to help them embark on what Johnson called a journey of unlearning. It's to help them understand that, no, you're not defective, that no, you do not have to fit into those mold and standards that are set by someone else. For me, 
Interior Chinatown is the book that helped me unlearn. And I know how important it is to have that. And we are going to make sure that All Boys Are in Blue is accessible to those who need this, to unlearn everything that they are conditioned to believe and to think about. And we all need to know that we try something out, if it doesn't work, create something new. So I'll leave you with a quote from Johnson. Love who you want to love and do it unapologetically, including that face that you see every day in the mirror. Be bold and brave and queer. Thank you so much, Virginia. As much as I just want to like rail against the people who don't understand, it's it's really nice to hear both of these books driving home the mirrors and windows. I think we all love to read in some ways because we feel we feel seen. Like for me, sometimes that was the first place that I would see myself and feel okay about myself was when you find that book. Yeah, that that loves you back. <laughs> so thank you. It's great to talk about that. All right. We are going to move on to Corrine now. What did you bring today? I'm bringing a book that was published in 2015 and is unfortunately still extremely relevant and unfortunately extremely topical. This book centers around two teens, one black and one white, and it is written by two authors, Jason Reynolds, who is black and hands down maybe the best writer for young adult kids out there living. He's maybe the greatest of all time. And Brendan Keeley, who is white. It centers around two our two main characters, Rashad, who is a normal teenager, albeit with a dad who's a little bit too intense about the military, and has forced him to join the ROTC, which as far as I can tell is kind of like air cadets, paramilitary high school organization with a lot of marching. After one practice day, he takes off his uniform and puts on what he thinks of as his regular clothes. He's about to head off to a party and he stops at a convenience store to pick up a snack. While he opens up his bag to find his change that is buried underneath, a white lady behind him trips and bumps into him. The chips that he was holding in his hand fly into his open bag. The clerk, who looks over and has been watching Rashad this entire time, accuses him of shoplifting. In the store at the same time, there is a white police officer. When the clerk accuses Rashad of shoplifting, the police officer immediately comes over to him and starts to beat him. The situation rapidly escalates when the police officer accuses Rashad of resisting arrest. He is beaten unconscious. Rashad wakes up in the hospital um, surrounded by his family, and he doesn't really understand what happened. He explains what happened to his mom and his dad, and his dad doesn't believe him. His dad thinks there must have been something that you said, something that you did. What were you wearing? But thankfully for Rashad, there is a video. And there are also witnesses. One of those witnesses is Quinn. Quinn is white. He plays basketball on a basketball team with many of Rashad's friends. He is obsessed with getting a basketball scholarship so that he and his best friend Guzo, whose older brother Paul, will kind of finally be proud of him. Paul is Guzo, his best friend's older brother. He essentially helped raise him after Quinn's father was killed in Afghanistan. 
when his family fell apart after this, Paul really helped Quinn get back on track. But Paul is also a policeman. And Paul is the one that Quinn witnesses assault one of his classmates. Quinn really doesn't understand what he's seeing. Paul has helped him his entire life. Paul is the one that when someone was bullying him, stood up for him and made it stop. So Paul was just doing his job, right? There must have been something that was happening that Quinn just doesn't understand. But when the video is released to the wider community, it splits everyone in two. There are the people that believe that Rashad's beating is part of a larger problem with policing and the policing of Black lives. The other half believe that Rashad must have done something. Paul says that he assaulted this white woman and was shoplifting and resisted arrest. Both of these boys have to grapple with the reality of what happened in their own way. And at the same time, they're grappling with the reality of racism, of police brutality, and of America. And I would actually widen that out to North America. Rashad, in his story, has to realize that he's part of a larger history and a larger reality of white supremacy and has a legacy of Black activism that he has to tap into. Quinn has to grapple with his white privilege, the reality that inaction speaks louder than any words. He has to let go of his friends. He has to even maybe let go of that basketball scholarship to do what he now believes is right. Both of them learn that they're part of a larger machine, the larger structure of white supremacy that sees Quinn as an all-American boy and sees Rashad as a dangerous thug. What I really find amazing about this story is that it's not simple. Nothing is one thing or the other. No one is truly good or evil. Rashad's brother is an activist in the community, but he's also not listening to what Rashad is telling him about his own experience. Rashad's own father used to be a policeman. Quinn's relationship with Paul, the police officer, was one of caring and mentorship. But Paul is also capable of that act. It also takes into account the impact of social media on activism and the danger that activists put themselves in in order to get the word out. As I said, this book was published in 2015. In 2022, it was the 26th most banned book and is part of the larger trend, I'd say, since 2020 to try and silence Black voices through the banning and challenging of materials, specifically teen materials and children's materials. So despite this book being a Coretta Scott King Award honor book and a Walter Dean Myers Award winner, it has been challenged and banned in many school libraries, including in South Carolina, where the actual police union came to the school district to challenge it because it had what they described as anti-police messages. It's been challenged on the basis of alcohol and drug use, <laughs> profanity, and again, anti-police messaging. And what Fiona had talked about earlier, the critical race theory of talking and naming white supremacy is also part of those challenges. Jason Reynolds and Brendan Keeley were actually touring together 
and were sharing a room when they received news of George Zimmerman being acquitted of the murder of Trayvon Martin. They talked a lot about the reality of race in America, and it was when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson that they knew that they had to do something, that they knew that they had to act. And for two writers, what they could do is write a book like All American Boys. In their afterwards, say that, and in interviews, say that adults are reluctant to talk about race, that they they hesitate kids are ready to talk about it and they want to do something about it. And that is kind of the impetus behind this book. They really believe that they owe it to the youth. They owe it to kids to talk frankly and honestly about reality. As Jason Reynolds says at the back, I do believe we can do better, be better, but we can't hide behind fear. We can't tuck the truth behind the cushions of comfort. We have to deal with it, really confront it, so that our children can live with a lot less weight. We owe it to them. If you are looking for a great novel for teens and uh, kind of upper middle school as well, I think you can do no better than this amazingly honest book by two fantastic authors. So I, I would definitely recommend picking up All American Boys. Thank you so much, Corrine. Thank you for bringing that collab between two excellent authors. Uh, very important, good book. Okay, we're going to go to my book now. Uh, and I have chosen a graphic memoir by Maya Kobabi. And uh, Maya's pronouns are E, R, M. And so I'm working on making sure to get those right. This is genderqueer. And as I mentioned, it is a graphic memoir, which I gotta say, I love a graphic memoir, but this one hit me pretty hard. So the intro is about Maya starting an, an art project for university and sort of like a prof who really pushed M to go into their past and their history. And they were like, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it. And then and then did it. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad that they did. You get the feeling throughout that it wasn't easy to do. And in some ways, it's a little bit disjointed of sort of like some anecdotes. It doesn't it doesn't have a narrative thread. It's more like this happened and this happened and experienced this. And I think for that, it makes it an excellent mirror for gender diverse folks as well as asexual folks. And also definitely an amazing thing to pick up if you're an ally or someone you love is gender diverse or asexual. It's saying these things happened to me and I don't know how to unpack them. Like I don't I don't have the tools yet to unpack them. And creating this book for other people, I think, is is part of it. So we get to see Maya grow up, starting out as a child, living with their family off the grid. So they have this very sort of like hippie, dippy lifestyle with a bigger family and uh, no electricity. And they go to a cool alternative school where they get to learn to like cobble and make pottery and in that environment you know there's not there's not a lot of gender roles and expectations on their gender a are assigned female at birth so it kind of makes it more stark when a comes into experiences these things of of you know other kids saying are you a boy or a girl or like you have to wear a shirt because you are a girl and the fact that you know a is obsessed with snakes is like really weird to some kids because 
A is seen as a girl. And they really only find Solus some connection to who they are in, in books and media. And Tamora Pierce, I know, is like a um, really, really influential to Maya Kobobe. A are really fun to follow on social media because A will often do book reviews and even go back and reread things and re-review them. A talks about Ranma One Half, um, which is like a manga where there's a boy who, when he gets wet, he turns into a girl, and how like influential that was for for Maya. There is a queer straight alliance in their school, and eventually they begrudgingly join it and and that's kind of the start for them until you know they just happen to stumble upon the word transgender on the internets which is which is where a lot of you know uh millennials sort of had the freedom to to i think explore uh new ideas and so that i think is a bit of a catalyst of of they really start to unpack things and eventually learn about asexuality and as I said, this is also interesting because it's clear that writing this is still part of that unpacking. It's still like we're still very much in this journey of of self-acceptance. And I found it actually very uncomfortable to read, but I'm really glad that I did. Maya is born in the same year as I am. And the things from our early life were just like, I don't know, uncomfortable but cathartic of like, oh my gosh, this is this is so similar to what I experienced. And even, you know, we talk about like how much teens need this, but adults need it too. And for me, it was a really, it was a really great moment of like, nobody's ever, I haven't got to read that yet. And here it is. Yeah, as I mentioned, it's it's a fantastic opportunity to explore gender diversity and asexuality. And what I love is that Maya does such a good job of acknowledging that on a spectrum of not simplifying things, not just creating another binary, obviously. But what I think everybody needs to keep in mind when they read this is this is, you know, one person's experience of being genderqueer and being asexual. And I think it's it's why we need so many stories because it's it's a very uh you know everyone is living that experience differently and expressing it differently so i i just i guess if i was going to give this to someone who was their first opportunity to delve into this a little bit more i would want to say like you know this is one experience and there's so many more i think that there's many things that have been challenged in this book but a big part of it is it talks a lot about masturbation which is you know like obviously an important part of human sexuality. And I'm really glad that the author goes there. But I think that for a lot of people, they just red flags go up. Like, oh, you know, high schoolers can't read about that. And this book, it was published a few years ago, but I think it's actually had a little bit of a resurgence. It was published in 2019, but I know that it did get, they got republished with a new cover just this year. And I think part of that is, has been the response of the challenges and banning that has actually created press. And I hope that, uh, you know, that has meant that it gets into more people's hands because it is a really, really great and worth reading. That is Genderqueer, a memoir by Maya Kabobe. So thank you, everyone, for all of your picks. I feel like I'm oscillating between like just savage rage and then like satisfaction and happiness about the books that we've gotten to talk about today. So as you go through your 
reading this week. I uh, had to check out some of the titles that we've chosen, maybe take some time to look at the Freedom to Read website and relish those books that we have the opportunity to read, even though some feel that we should not. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.